Hello and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week. Please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at Austin Art Talk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Kathy Sever founded her company Fort Lonesome almost 20 years ago, which creates custom chain-stitched embroidered western wear for local Austinites, as well as musicians and celebrities flaunting their elaborate wares all over the world. In the interview, we talk about her artistic origins and upbringing, her time living on a ranch in Montana that was very influential, how she ended up finding and learning chain-stitch embroidery and what it is, the many challenges she's faced both professionally and personally growing the business, her awesome team of employees, and how she never really gets to meet the celebrities they work with, and she's okay with that. I love how candid Kathy is about the struggle she has had growing her business and how inspired she is by the people she works with every day and all their hard work. Here's Kathy. Kathy, thanks for being on my podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate your time. I was saying just a minute ago that not to diminish other artists' time, but I definitely feel a little bit more of a responsibility with you because you have this business with all these moving parts and you have multiple employees and a lot of clients. And I'm just, I'm very grateful for your time. Well, yeah, it's complicated <laughs> trying to figure out how to organize my time, but I'm yeah. glad to, it actually feels really nice to just sit here for oh, a little bit of time. <laughs> oh, awesome. Well, I'm glad. A little bit of uh, talk therapy. Yeah, totally. Um, so first, I just want to say how much I enjoy your sense of humor. Thank you. I mean, just reading your posts online, it's just so much fun. It seems like you really, you and your employees and with your company, you just have so much fun, right? We have fun. It's, yeah, we get that feedback a lot. That's one of the sort of pieces that's been interesting in terms of building this business is getting a lot of feedback from other people about what our public persona reads as, us as sort of a collective Um, entity. And people always say, oh, it looks like you guys have so much fun, which we do. And also, there are days and days of monotony and hard work. And (laughs) um, and we're really very fortunate that we do have these sort of, you know, we work really hard and then we laugh a lot. Yeah, 
from delirium from working so much. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Um, sure. Yeah, so you own Fort Lonesome, and do. you do chain stitch and embroidery and custom Western wear, mm-hmm. right, here in Austin. Another thing that I really love that I wanted to point out is how I feel like you're using the platform that you you have now, I feel like, to really make a positive difference in a lot of people's lives. I mean, it just seems like this is a lot more, maybe that's just obvious, it's a lot more than just making something and selling it. I mean, it seems like you have a lot of issues that you're really passionate about that you talk about, and there's people that you collaborate with, and I just, uh, I'd really admire that too, you know, because I, I kind of want to have that myself, you know, it's like you have this platform where you're reaching people and you want to make a difference or make people's lives easier, inspire them or make them realize they're not alone and we're all struggling with the same things, you know? Yeah. I think that that's actually been something that has sort of been born out of having worked as a solo artist for so many years I I just kind of was plugging away on my own and you know kind of doing that dance of trying to figure out how to make things work and then when things kind of started to gel for Fort Lonesome and we started to get attention I became acutely aware of how random that attention like the the lens of other people's attention is a very ethereal and difficult to pin down um, cocktail of randomness and having that platform arise after so many years of not having a platform like that it like I, I just felt the desire to want to shine a light as yeah. much as possible on on all of the pieces of the puzzle that have to come together to like generate to have I'm, I don't feel like I'm doing a very good job of of um, articulating it but like no I understand I think that being a you know in my mid 40s I I don't feel a lot of ownership around my business's success. I mm. feel like it's a, a village effort. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I do really like to kind of use the platform that we have to take that spotlight and try to shine it on as many people around us who have helped um, us to kind of create what we have here. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I just think it's so cool to create something through years of hard work, solitary hard work that then now employs people mm-hmm. and creates you know beautiful objects that are seen all over the world really and that are very appreciative and i just i mean i read some of the comments on your instagram posts and everyone's just like freaking out i'm just so like and i'm so inspired and you're amazing and i don't know i just yeah that that's part of the weird randomness of yeah of having like an a spotlight where yeah. where there's as much as we enjoy the attention, it you also realize that like there's just so many people in the world doing amazing work who, for one reason or another, aren't getting that kind yeah, of feedback. Right. Um, I guess it's just kind of an important thing to to keep in context. Yeah, like or it, stay it, humble, right? Yeah, I mean, it's easy to stay humble when you're a oh. small business owner <laughs> <laughs> because it's just a perpetual series of catastrophes Uh-oh. and successes, yeah. but they tend to balance each other out. But yeah, the fact that, that I have employees now has actually kind of become one of my biggest, the, one yeah. of the things that I feel the most pride around because it's... It really is an art form in and of itself, cultivating an environment where you can invite 
other people in and attempt to create a sustainable life for more than just yourself. Yeah. That has been like, it's usurped some of my creative energy away from the creative work that I originally was doing, which has been complicated for me on some levels, but it's also been incredibly satisfying to divert my creative energy into something that I feel like is in service of something that's more than just my, me and my project. Yeah. How do you navigate that? I wonder, because it's like, yeah, you're having to, obviously you can't do everything. So you're having to delegate these things and some of them you might really want to do. And Mm -hmm. there might be creative things that you really want to do. And you have to, does that feel like a sacrifice? Um, let go of those things? Yeah, for sure. Less so now than in years prior. That was definitely a piece of the learning curve of trying to figure out how to run a business and be a boss was um, the grief around knowing that I had to take the work that I wanted to be focusing on and turn it over to other people involved in the business so that I could focus on the parts of the business that they wouldn't be able to focus on. That will sustain the whole thing. Right. Keep them. The building. Yeah. Building the business. And yeah, like that as an artist was very uh, emotionally complicated. Mm. You really realize how fragile your sense of self is when you're taking the thing that you feel most identified with and you're turning it over to somebody else and then watching them develop this skill set and even surpass your abilities often because they're uh, able to really focus in zone in and just develop their muscles in a way that you as the business owner aren't aren't allowed to be able to do to wear so many hats yeah yeah, that that has been that's been a big existential mm. challenge for me that now I can kind of reflect back on and feel an enormous amount of gratitude around like I feel a lot of gratitude um that my employees, the people who happen to arrive at the right time yeah. and start <laughs> working with me, we've developed this incredibly symbiotic trust relationship where I feel like I can turn all of these things over. And then when I'm ready, I can still sit down and try to rebuild that skill set for myself. But I went through years of really feeling um, irrelevant and mm. just feeling my, my skill set that I wanted to be working on, kind of feeling those skills slip away a little bit because I wasn't practicing, 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 like the, the actual drawing and embroidery that I was, I was turning that stuff over and and watching these incredible pieces unfold and this incredible visual language develop that we were all a part of but i i, I for a while i was feeling very sort of separate yeah. from what felt like the core thing that i wanted to most be participating in now in retrospect i'm really glad that things developed the way they did and that i was able to steer the business in a direction where we were able to just sustain ourselves long enough to kind of get through this growing phase. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that was a, a mind trip that I never would have anticipated. Yeah. Like I didn't have any kind of mentorship for that specific, 
uh, paradigm of here's what to expect when you've been making everything yourself and then you start to grow your business. Not that we're reinventing the wheel, but um, it, it came out of the blue yeah, yeah. for me and it was very emotionally challenging. If you were mentoring someone now in your position back then, what would you say to them that you maybe haven't already said just now? I think, um, I don't know what I would say. I think it's, it's funny whenever that kind of question comes up, I tend to believe that often one has to just go through what one is going to go through and all of the random, you, you know, you can't absorb information that you don't understand. It's yeah. kind of like talking to expectant parents about what it's going to be like when the baby arrives. Yeah. You know, yeah. you can kind of dance around the energetic scenarios, but they're not going to completely be able to internalize what you're talking about until they're actually walking through it. Right. I think that that like my experience of the evolution of Fort Lonesome, there was a lot, a lot of mistakes that were made and a lot of big emotional kind of moments of turmoil. And those things have now, in retrospect, served us. Mm. So I'm not sure what I would say to somebody except for that, yeah, I really don't know. I think kind of trusting in the trusting in the process which that sounds so <laughs> trite yeah. like I think I would punch somebody if they said that to me actually well how do you how do you guide yourself I mean do you get advice from your husband do you just use your intuition do you I mean how do you find your way how have, how have you found your way through all of this just um I have I have definitely kind of this this has sort of been an intuitive process I, that being said I've also had people that I talk to like my husband for sure um although we do kind of try to stay out of each oh, other's yeah. businesses to a certain extent because we could both go into hyper like micromanagement yeah. of the other's creative career with no problem whatsoever but yeah no there have been people in town um who I have kind of used as touch stones um other business people and that's been that's been awesome like austin is really great that way there's so many people doing weird creative um kind of uh, hybrid entrepreneur slash art yeah things yeah so i have i definitely try to reach out and connect with those people as much as possible that being said as you have realized i also have a hard time breaking out of my work habits and kind of Uh, engaging with the community can be challenging for me because i feel like a lot of my uh, i'm not i am a i am not a social person by nature but i love i love people but i have a very limited amount of energy that i can spend on being around people and I'm around people all day now because of my employees who I love but usually by the time a work day is over I need to just shut everything down and have as much quiet as I possibly can before the next work day so that has been a challenge to try to then stay connected with my community. Whereas before when I was working on my own, you know, I was more hungry for Mm. um, connection. And so was spending more time with people who were doing all kinds of different things. Whereas now sometimes I have to really remind myself to kind of get out of my own little bubble. Yeah. 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 
you'd mentioned in one of your in- Instagram posts, um, you were talking about uh, what goes into building an art space business that's unseen. I know we've been kind of talking about some of this kind of internal process, but I mean, what are some of the other things that you would want to shed light on that you think people don't realize goes into building a business like this? I think when you are building a business that is larger than one person and you're interested in trying to maintain some sort of clear aesthetic vision, trying to figure out how to develop that language when there's more than one voice involved is really fascinating. Mm. And it is sort of perpetually unfolding. It's not like a... It doesn't feel like a something that you achieve. It feels like something that you build and continue to build. Yeah. I think that everybody is looking for a certain amount of validation, personal validation. And so building something that is communal, like what we have here, where there's a lot of people involved and a lot of individual voices that I'm trying to figure out how to kind of meld mm. to a certain extent like that that is a dance that is perpetually kind of in need of tending to and listening to and being observant of just to make sure that each individual voice feels heard mm. and yet making sure that we can present ourselves as sort of a, a you know a harmonic chorus is to take the metaphor annoyingly far. Um, Yeah. Just, just things like that, like the interpersonal work that goes into having a group of artists working together on a regular basis to create something under the umbrella of a brand. It can be tricky. It it has been tricky. I feel like we're, I, I feel very lucky to have a group that, you know, right now feels very unified and very strong and um, we're all very excited about the future. And, but that has been, that's been a baby <laughs> that yeah. I've had to kind of caretake that we collectively, like I, you know, I, I'm a piece of that puzzle, but we, we kind of, people think that, you know, people see that we have fun, which is true. And it's, it's so important to the cohesiveness of what we are putting out into the world that we are all seeing each other and connecting with each other and communicating openly and clearly and feeling uh, an enormous amount of mutual respect. And, you know, all of those things are really so critical, I think, to this end product that has nothing, you know, once it's out in the world, it's funny to think about the sheer number of hands that have touched a suit once it leaves the shop. There's easily sometimes five or six people mm-hmm. who have had to work together to get that thing out the door. And so you want to make sure that those people are working to, together in a way that feels really healthy and, you know, symbiotic and all that. So that, yeah. that I think is, is one of those things that one of those unseen pieces of, of running a business like this, as well as all of the just sheer craziness of trying to make enough money to yeah. keep the lights on which I think because we make a product that ends up being expensive, I guess. I mean, it's, it's all relative, but we get a lot of feedback that people think that what we make is expensive and that therefore we must be making a bunch of money. Yeah, right. <laughs> and that's not true. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so just all of the 
the myriad um, intricacies of what it takes to actually keep a, keep the lights on. Yeah. What have you figured out about how to be a leader? I guess you're a leader in a sense, right? I, mean, <laughs> I think my employees would find that funny. But um, <laughs> um, I think what I've learned the most and what's been the most challenging for me, and I think that it, it is born of having kind of started off life fantasizing more about being an individual artist, is that how my ego really gets in the way. It can get in the way. It has gotten in the way of us growing as a business Mm. and I have to perpetually it's been really great like I actually have gained a lot of insight into myself and the way that my constitution sort of shows up in the world by becoming by like being in a leadership role because I'm not a particularly strong leader um nor have I ever been desirous of that role. I'm fairly, you know, introverted. And yeah, I've definitely never sought out leadership roles at all. Kind of revisiting what I was talking about before, when I first started having to turn over creative work to other people, and I felt so threatened by that concept. And that manifested in a number of ways, you know, when you're threatened by your own employees, that can be a huge (laughs) problem. And so I had to really dive into Mm. that and um, unpack what that was about and realize that it wasn't about anything that was being taken away from me. It was about what I could be potentially growing into. But that didn't, you know, I had to kind of find that in retrospect. So really having to settle into stripping away the parts of my identity that I felt were my, my, my tokens that I could cash in societally to be allowed to exist in the world. You know, Mm. like, um, I, I, I make, therefore I am like, you know, being able to be offered the opportunity to have that taken away. And who am I in the world if I'm not this person that is making this thing? Yeah. Um, I, and I think having to kind of move through that in this very intense scenario where the business was building and things were rapidly changing and I kind of had to figure it out or watch it all explode. Wow. That I think that ended up being incredibly beneficial in terms of developing leadership skills. <laughs> and as a person. <laughs> and as a person. Yeah, just kind of... I feel much more able now to really hear what my team has to say. I I hope that's true. I feel funny, you know, because who knows, they would be able to reflect better on this than I could. But um, it's it's a difficult thing to be able to, to take criticism, which it's not, it's not like, you know, everybody that works at Fort Lonesome is very emotionally intelligent yeah, (laughs) (laughs) and we, and we are all um, incredibly um, caretaking of one another's emotional experiences, but it's also, you know, like moving from a a place where I felt like this was my baby, this is my baby and it's this thing and it's changing and I don't know how to control it anymore. And, and, and I'm kind of writing something that has run away without me and there's all these other people involved. And so that having all of those other people involved then have, you know, 
um, feeding back about how the thing was moving and and where it was going was really intense and hard for me to mm. not take incredibly personally. Yeah. Um, As you felt like you were losing your identity. Yeah. That you were holding on to. Yeah. Kind of just, it just felt like a train that was leaving the station ah. without me to a certain extent, but getting to a, a place where I could really rest in the security of if I don't listen to what is being fed back to me, then that will lead to a worse outcome than if I just sit and absorb this and don't take it personally. And, you know, and hear from all of these people who I love and trust what they think about what will make this a stronger, better platform slash work environment slash whatever. Yeah. That, that has been like, that's something that I'm just really fascinated by because I, it's something that I can feel on, on a, you know, I feel it even with my kids, it's given me a, a stronger muscle to be able to observe their experiences in life without reacting, but just being able to kind of be present for their journeys. That sounds so new agey and horrible. Oh God. Oh Lord. That's okay. Uh, Anyway, sometimes I've read a lot of self-help books in the last five years. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Any, any of them stand out especially that helped you? Mm. That you would that I would not be humiliated. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think so. Okay. Actually, I can't even think. Like right now, my brain is actually drawing a total blank. Yeah, on no any worries. of them. <laughs> well, uh, I just want to back up a, a little bit to you'd mentioned where your artistic ambitions came from, and I just I know like your dad was a photographer and your mom did embroidery also no she was actually a math teacher but oh, a she, math teacher. But she okay. also taught home economics okay and so um knew how to sew quite well so we always yes she i had a sewing machine around and being used regularly when i was growing up yeah so you grew up in california mm-hmm. and what was what was that like and what how did your upbringing lead into art I'm kind of curious. Um, and your love of the outdoors, too, which I think is absolutely tied to growing up there, I would assume. E- yes. Yes. And my my parents were great appreciators of the outdoors. That was all kind of we did for family travel. Yeah. Growing up was, well, not, not all we did, but that was our primary thing that we did was my parents actually met leading trips for the Sierra Club. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they were both really intrepid outdoors people. And so we went backpacking quite a bit. My dad being a, he was a photographer kind of of the Ansel Adams ilk. He actually had the opportunity to overlap with Ansel Adams a bit because of being in the same area and having the same community. He was kind of in that Weston slash Ansel Adams, Carmel Highlands, Big Sur Mm -hmm. community. Friends of Photography developed out of Carmel. Um, so we would, he, he liked to, he liked our trips to sort of not necessarily revolve around him being able to go take <laughs> pictures, but there was, that was always in the background. Yeah. But yeah, so he, my dad was, I think how it's informed me a lot, actually, it's funny. Uh, he took 
an art form that he adored and he turned tried to turn it into a business and then the business was very challenging to to try to run and I I find myself kind of laughing about the patterns of his that I'm recreating in my own life Mm -hmm. now yeah we do that don't we we do (laughs) we do because I definitely his darkroom was in the house and so he had a, a like a professional studio that was not in the house where he would have clients come and sit for portraits, et cetera. But most, he did all of the dark room work at home and he would just always, he would be tucked away in his dark room and all, all hours of the day and night. And there was a lot of swearing <laughs> and <laughs> a lot of just tearing of hair and frust- you know, like I definitely witnessed his, struggle to try to figure out how to take this thing that he loved to do and figure out how to turn it into a sustainable business. My mom did a lot of kind of helping him with um, books and, and we were, you know, it was just like a small family business. And my mom had a, she was a school teacher. And so she had a nice steady situation, but there was a lot of kind of the family dancing around my dad's business and and helping support him in different ways and you would think that that actually might have scared me off of doing what I did but I think that I I don't know I I I think that I just always had a really romantic notion of this idea of being able to turn your art into something that could sustain your livelihood yeah and I, I, I can't exactly pinpoint how that came, how that was born of my upbringing, except for that um, I worshipped my dad when when I was really little. Um, he got ill and had to kind of stop doing what he was doing. So for actually a lot of my formative years, he wasn't even mm. making art um, at all. But I, I have definitely wondered about if that didn't have any sort of subconscious impact on my wanting to kind of take the ball and run with yeah, it to a right. certain extent, like hold a place in our family narrative for kind of trying to carry on what he was trying to do. That being said, I definitely did not do that in any kind of conscious way. That mm-hmm. has just been something that I've thought about retrospectively on yeah. Thinking about how similar my life feels yeah, sometimes yeah. to to his to remembering what what his experience was as a small business owner. And how did art manifest for you personally, like kind of growing up and then school and like what were you drawn to? When I was in high school, I just did a lot of drawing. Um, my my mom always had her sewing machine out and was almost always working on something. Mm. So materials were made totally available like my mom had her box of the stuff that we weren't supposed to touch but then there was always lots of materials laying around and so I remember staying home sick from school and you know just being able to walk into the sewing room and take out scissors and try to you know hand sew Mm. up a little doll or something like that like there was a lot of just being allowed access to what like her her space and materials I think it's very common also, like I didn't love school at all. And Mm -hmm. we had this really awesome art teacher at the high school that I went to. Um, 
and he kind of drew in a lot of these kids that maybe had a little bit of an artistic leaning and he kind of cultivated that sense of feeling an identity, being able to kind of develop an identity around art and artistry. And he just was also a a great um, representation of remembering, like not to take things too seriously, Mm. not to take yourself too seriously. And so I kind of found myself drawn to that room and him and that scene to a certain extent in, in high school. Although when I was in high school, I really never imagined, like I didn't think that that would be what I was doing. I thought I was going to major in forestry. I was kind Mm. of thinking maybe I would be like a park ranger or or something like that. Um, But then, yeah, just kind of like you do at that age, just started kind of trying on different things. I actually ended up being a theater major for a second in college and really realized very quickly that that was not anything I had any interest in at all. And then just kind of, you know, for a lot, it was almost like for lack of knowing what else to do, I felt very comfortable in the art world and had started taking some painting classes and just fell in love with oil painting. So that was what I did Mm. all through college was oil painting. There was a great, I went to Humboldt State University, which was not an art school, but it was a small school and it had a really interesting faculty because there was a lot of artists from the Bay Area who were kind of trying to get away from the Bay Area and oh, trying yeah. to get away from trying to find a little more space in their lives and ended up up in the Redwoods in Northern California. And so I found the the faculty of this tiny little art department to be really uh, supportive and interesting and kind of innovative. And Mm. so I just stuck around and majored. Yeah. Just sort of happened. I don't know. And did you feel passionate about painting? You just did it all day, every day. And I did at that time. Yeah. That's the beauty of that age and Mm. being offered that opportunity to just be in school. You know, you think back about how, little you appreciate (laughs) that when it's happening just you know I was lucky like Humboldt State University was super affordable and we had a little bit of savings so I didn't have to work a lot during college um were you already married at this point no oh no Matt and I were we went to high school together but we we didn't get married for a while (laughs) yeah okay (laughs) yeah not until 90 let's see I graduated high school in 90 and then we got married in 90 Fate. Oh God, <laughs> I'm the worst. He makes fun of me all the time because yeah, I right. can't remember dates or so. Yeah, yeah. So you got out of college and you thought I'm going to be a painter, or did that seem I, like a viable? Option? I kind of did think that. I I didn't really ever picture myself being a painter as much as I thought it would be fun to pursue teaching. Oh, okay. So I I had definitely designs on trying to teach at a college level. So I wanted to go to graduate school and I um, tried and I didn't get in. Okay. <laughs> I just, I, I moved to Boston. I, I really fixated on the museum school for some reason. Yeah. And I decided that if I was going to get a graduate degree, I wanted it to be from there. And I moved in with my cousin who was attending um, Harvard and applied to that one school and didn't get in. And then 
there I was in Boston and kind of starting to live a life outside of being in school. Mm, yeah. I mean, I had been out of school for a little while. That's when I lived in Montana for a little bit, but between undergraduate and then trying to get into graduate school. Um, yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Cause it seems like that was a little bit of an influence on what you're doing now. Too. Yeah, that was a, Yeah, it was a huge influence and it was an influence. Actually, I moved to Boston, didn't get into graduate school. And after coming out of Montana, I was less enamored with the idea of pursuing mm. that career. Cause I'd sort of be, become a little disenchanted with the preciousness of the art world yeah. because of living in Montana and living in a situation where there was so much creativity imbued in all of these very pragmatic daily tasks that people were doing well, you know, building fences and welding and um, quilt making, clothing making, uh, furniture building. Like there, that was, hmm. everybody w- had their hand in that to a certain extent. And everybody was doing what I felt like was really interesting things with those crafts. And it was all outside of this world that I had thought I was really in love with, you mm-hmm. know, the kind of like museums and galleries and seeing this kind of community that was forged of this shared skill building. Yeah. Like I, I worry about making it seem too quaint, you know, like, yeah, yeah, like it, it, it just was, it just was refreshing. It just felt deliciously unprecious Mm. to be able to really dig in and get creative with something that was maybe just not just, but it was going to be a utilitarian item, a, a blanket or, you know, a fence post or, or something like that. Like yeah. I, I just, I found a great deal of comfort in unpeeling some of the more cerebral elements of art making. Yeah. Did you do any painting while you were there, or were you just doing ranch work? I I did set up... I mean, I wasn't actually painting there just because I didn't actually have that much space. I was in a tiny little cabin on Mm. this ranch that I shared with a few other people. And so I set up... I was just doing, like, charcoal drawings. I, I did a fair amount of that, but then also was... I wasn't doing a lot of those other things, like the quilt... Oh, well, I did some quilt quilting... My sister was the cook at the ranch, and so oh, wow. mostly was like helping her and doing plenty of, you know, we, we really got to integrate. It was a small ranch, and so we got to do a lot of um, everything, yeah. like irrigation and, you know, mending fences and, you know, wrangling horses and all of it. So that was the other thing is it, it was such a, a, a variety of sensory experiences happening all at once. I was less sort of mentally focused on, you know, capital A art making. Yeah. And that's where you, was that where you first got kind of exposed to Western wear and kind of the Western style and? No, I was really more exposed to that in art school. Oh, really? Okay. Just kind of from a more, um, for lack of a better um, term, but like more of the the rockabilly lens mm. on Western wear. There's, you know, a lot of the art kids would wear Western, oh, okay. you know, pearl snaps and that kind of thing. Um, moving to Montana and having all of those things put into a different context was re- was really interesting for me to to see this overlapping communal language <laughs> yeah. that was shared by two really kind of um, disparate 
groups of people, you know, jumping from kind of this art world in California to this ranching world in Montana, but noticing some of the similar overtones was, I I loved that. I still love that about Western wear, about how it's adopted by so many different groups and really embraced by so many different groups that normally wouldn't be sharing aesthetics. Yeah, and just the kind of the dichotomy of these cowboys or whoever with doing all this dirty work and then having their like pressed shirts and Mm -hmm. all that. I mean, when did you first kind of start noticing clothes or being into clothing at all? Um, I think I always have been. I definitely was super focused on clothing growing up. I always wanted to have whatever was cool. Yeah. <laughs> to much to my mother's chagrin as well as my own in retrospect. I was pretty trend focused. Okay. And uh so your mom couldn't just make you something. <laughs> oh no, she did and I didn't want it. I did not yeah. want the things that my mom made me when I was growing up. I mean when I was young, when I was little. Yeah, yes, but then when yeah. I was in high school it was, you know, I wanted esprit. I yeah. wanted to go to the mall, all that good stuff. So I think that like I've I've always found clothing a really interesting form of self-expression. When I was in college, it, it looked very different than it did when I was in co- in high school, but similarly, I definitely was thinking about what I was wearing. The funny thing is I don't really anymore. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> I don't think. I mean, I'm sure I do to a certain extent, but so much less than I used to. Now that I'm like immersed in this yeah. world and making it, I feel like I just wear gym clothes. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even wear things that are embroidered probably. No, nope, not very much. <laughs> so how, how, take us to where kind of the genesis of Fort Lonesome then. I don't know how much we're skipping over, but you know, that's kind of what I'm interested in learning about. Yeah. Um, you know, from Boston to Austin or wherever, getting Boston, married Austin. and yeah. and then starting to embroider and make clothing. Yeah, I moved from, I was doing, um, I was working in restaurants in Boston. Then I moved to Austin and I was working in restaurants. And um, I, at that point, I thought that I had decided I was going to be a pastry chef and was, that's what I was doing um, when I first moved here and was really thinking that I would continue, got married and then got pregnant. And by the time I was looking at quitting in order to have my first kid, I realized I didn't think I wanted to go back into that world after my daughter was born. The hours are really intense. And I also was interested in trying to figure out if I could just stay at home with her when she was little. Um, And and she just went off to college she just right went off to college. <laughs> so this has been a little while yeah, she's, she just turned 19 <laughs> two days ago yeah so it's sort of the classic have a kid try to figure out how you're going to make a living yeah. without being able to afford or really want to put her in childcare right off the bat yeah uh so i started sewing things my midwife was a dear friend is a dear friend and w- was helping me try to kind of figure out what to do I was sewing things regularly anyway, and um, she hooked me up with uh, another client of hers who was doing sewn product type stuff. She was making bibs and other kinds of things. And this other woman, Katie Gilligan was her name, and she and I hit it off and became fast friends. And Katie was on a mission to build a big bombastic business. And so 
before I knew it, I was going to markets with her and getting reps. And, and I was, so I was developing a children's clothing line Mm. on my own while, while helping her with the business that she was developing because we were working together as friends. We, I just started kind of following on her coattails where she was taking her business and she was growing her business rapidly. She wanted to. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that I didn't want to okay. <laughs> until it happened and I had to catch up with it. Um, yeah, we started, so that was my children's clothing line, which was called Remonster, but which was all Western wear. So that was years of all of a sudden I was like having things manufactured in LA and working with sales reps who were selling things globally. And that was not my jam, yeah. so to speak. I wasn't prepared for that kind of growth and that kind of business model. And I, and it kind of exploded in mm. my face. And I had a few big things go down that were very expensive. And mm. I just had to kind of shut that all down. Um, but along the way, I had gotten a little bit of attention and, and made some connections and was becoming known for doing Western wear and yeah. was starting to get requests for custom pieces which I wasn't really able to accommodate while I was doing the kids line. Um, so I kind of put the kids line to bed and just started working more on the custom pieces. And because I was doing that, I had a, a friend here in town, Jenny Hart, who has a company called Sublime Stitching. She's sort of, she doesn't live in Austin anymore. She moved to LA, but she was sort of responsible for bringing hand embroidery, at least back mm. to a more Um, relevant place culturally she had a chain stitch embroidery machine and didn't know how to use it and sold it to me because she knew of it these machines affiliations with western wear yeah and that kind of over the course of years i had the machine had no idea how to use it couldn't find any information about Mm. them online anywhere couldn't find anybody who knew anything about no them. No YouTube videos. No YouTube videos. <laughs> no. Now there's a plethora of them, but yeah. at, uh, at this point, nope, not a one, not a single. I, and I started blogging about trying to get this machine going. Yeah. And nothing. I was just getting nowhere, and was kind of like, I think I'm going to sell it. I don't know what to do, and um, was contacted by a guy in Indianapolis who also had come across a machine and was mm. trying to figure out how to use it, and he found a guy who worked in an opera shop doing costumes who had been using a machine all along who had actually kind of aggregated a little bit of a manual that he had put together. And he allowed us to upload that into a little Yahoo group that had been started. And we kind of took it from there, Hmm. used that to get the machines more consistently running. And then once I was feeling more confident on the chain stitch embroidery machine, I realized that there was so it, it really kind of re-sparked my connection to painting actually because oh, I yeah. started feeling confident in a medium again and realizing that like there was all these other things that I wanted to do with this besides just doing western wear yeah. and that it just so happened I was working with my friends Caleb and Ryan that have land yeah. is their company mm-hmm. um, I had been just chatting with them because at the time I was working at UT in the design um, prototyping lab and Ryan was doing all of these interesting things for Johnson's backyard garden with type and kind of wood, yeah. wood type looking fonts. And we had just been chatting about that and I had asked them about helping me brand. Yeah. Right. And they, they were the ones actually, they were, that were like, they, they, 
we think you should change your business name because this Remonster was what it was. And they kind of, you know, indicated that maybe that felt like a children's clothing b- yeah. brand. And that's what not was. really was. It. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, so that's when I did the rebrand and they mm. helped me with that. And the rest is kind of history, so to speak. I, that was when the, mach- the chain stitch embroidery became far more of a focus. Western wear was a piece of a much bigger puzzle. And that was when I started bringing in other people to help because things yeah. just kind of took off really rapidly. Yeah. I actually know Ryan because I've been the photographer for Johnson's Backyard Garden for oh. nine years this month. Oh, wow. So I've known him yeah. for a long time. Yeah. He's been super helpful and is just such a kind person. And um, yeah, I feel really lucky to have been able to work with them at that time yeah yeah they're super talented yeah could you just briefly describe what chain stitch embroidery is or how it's done sure yeah chain stitch embroidery basically we use these machines chain stitch embroidery that have names right (laughs) yeah (laughs) although that is something that we've kind of like a lot of them have been forgotten because we've had (laughs) to like for a while everybody had their own machine and then the machines would start breaking down and i would have to steal pieces from this one and put it on here and swap these guys out and this one would go on the floor for a little while while i was working on this one and all of a sudden like somebody yeah we get asked that a lot because it had been a thing yeah now i'm always like i'm sorry that we've kind of like broken that narrative a little bit (laughs) yeah seriously now they're all sort of frankenstein but yeah these machines they're vintage most of what i have are these singer machines a lot of them are 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 about 100 years old or almost 100 years old but the way that they work is that as opposed to a regular domestic sewing machine which is creating a lock stitch meaning that there is thread on the top of the machine and then thread in the bobbin case of the machine Mm -hmm. and those two threads lock together that is called a lock stitch and that is how most sewing is done yeah these machines utilize what was kind of the very first sewing technology which is that there's just one thread it comes up from underneath the machine and the needle of the machine is actually a little tiny hook like a little tiny crochet hook and it pierces the fabric goes down through a hole in the throat plate of the machine kind of grabs a loop of thread and pulls it up and then it plunges back down and grabs Mm. another loop so it's creating a chain in finger knitting it's called a daisy chain so it's creating this a chain stitch and and a lot of people are most familiar with a chain stitch because it's what's used to like close up the tops of dog food bags oh, okay. or like our, you know, the, um, feed sacks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if you, and if you can undo the stitching just right, you pull it yeah, you pull that and it one just string pulls and it just, the yeah. whole thing out and it's very satisfying. And yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's that same exact same okay. stitch, but these machines then have all these gears and kind of rotating parts that allow there to be a there's a there's a handle underneath the machine that sort of acts as a steering wheel Hmm. and so the machine starts going and it starts stitching and you're guiding where the foot of the machine is actually grabbing and moving the fabric and by doing that you're then able to kind of draw with the machine Mm -hmm. so we we sort of use the etch-a-sketch analogy a lot. You're using all of these kind of dials and guides to get the needle of the machine to essentially draw your picture for you. 
That's really cool. Yeah, I know the results are just unbelievably beautiful. I mean, really. A lot of the pictures, like a whole scene or something, it's mm-hmm. just like so. Yeah, cool. you can just you can use you can fill in a lot of space with those. So now that we're kind of caught up to present day, I suppose in a way, right? I mean, there's obviously a lot that's happened, but maybe just give me a sense of like what the business looks like now. Like, what does the team look like? I mean, you obviously have a lot of are getting a lot of notoriety with these collaborations with different celebrities and artists and. Um, it's all really interesting to me. I just maybe you could talk about all that. Yeah, well, there's now, gosh, so you just met um, Becca and Lauren, who, and they're sort of the the garment constructing team. Yeah. And then on the chain stitch machines are um, Christina, Dana, Amrit, Michelle, and Brian. And then we have a couple of interns that we're integrating in. And we just hired this woman, Meredith, who's like, she dropped out of the clear blue sky and is all, all of my dreams are coming true. Yeah. She's like a business genius and from my perspective. Um, yeah, I had seen that listing on your website for that job and it was like a lot of different hats, hats. and skills yeah. that you need. But I, it, I mean, it made me think that like, wow, she's really just wants to keep taking this to the next level, right? I mean... Well, yeah, I was definitely at a place where I kind of... We just really have to figure out where we're going because we all, this sounds sort of trite, but like we work so hard. Yeah. And I think everybody's kind of feeling like it's a little unsustainable mm. to work this hard unless you have a super clear vision yeah. about where you're going and how that is going to serve you. Yeah. You know, serve us collectively, but then also how that is going to serve everybody individually. That is a very difficult thing to be able to put your finger on when you are very busy reacting to the market and trying to make sure bills are getting paid. You know, it it, it takes an an enormous amount of headspace to be able to back up enough to get a, a read on the current big picture and then be able to project that out into the future and make sure that you're tr- you're going in a trajectory that is the direction that you want to be going and not where you are being taken. Yeah, to be proactive, to more be, proactive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I definitely have had a hard time finding mm. that space. And so having somebody who can kind of come in mm, yeah. and help us gain that perspective as well as make some very actionable plans for how to move towards what we all need. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that I, I think I had just gotten to a point where I was really like, I need to do, I need to find something that feels different or I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to like work myself into an early grave. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Cause you could just keep following this momentum and there's obviously, it seems like there's a lot of it from the outside. There's a lot of attention. There's a lot of, your things sell out and yeah, I could see how it'd be easy just to like go with that flow and just keep hammering it out. And yeah. <laughs> and then where do you end up? Right. right. So, yeah. And then you realize that you've kind of, you, you haven't been in control of yeah. this situation. So it felt very scary. The idea of, we really just kind of needed to grow the business up, which yeah. felt really intimidating in a lot of ways. And, um, we'll see, hopefully, this is all still very new, but I'm really excited about the sort of next phase 
of learning how to say no to things. <laughs> like oh, that, yeah. That's something right. that's really hard for me. And learning um, to be able to look at numbers and and get very realistic about mm-hmm. what we can and can't do and for how much. And I, you know, I think a lot of artists in general, and I definitely come from a background of just kind of feeling excited that I can even make any money at all doing this. And yeah. so the idea of making a healthy, sustainable living feels so unrealistic that I think I self-sabotage to a certain extent. And so we needed somebody else to kind of step in and tell me to stop doing that, stop self-sabotaging and stop like saying yes to things that we really can't afford to do because I have a certain amount of I just have a lot of baggage around Mm. what you have to charge in order to be able to make a sustainable living. It goes back to my dad. Like my dad did the exact same thing. I think Mm. it's just so classic being an artist and small business owner (laughs) is you just want, you just feel like you should be giving things to people all the time because you can't believe anybody would actually ever pay you to do the thing that you want to do. Yeah. I do the exact same thing. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of ubiquitous. Like you, really takes a business-minded person to kind of walk in and say, okay, you've been doing that for the last, you know, I've been doing that for however many years now, almost 20, if you think back to the start of Vermonster. And you hit a certain age and it's kind of really like, oh, why, why would I keep doing that? You know, like now I know that I don't want to work this hard the rest of my life. Yeah. And I will have to unless I start saying no to some things and that feels very scary and it and I feel Mm. really excited simultaneously to have somebody coming in to kind of help walk me through what that looks and feels like and kind of reflect the value of what you're doing really like the more realistic value of it yes which that's where it feels scary because like I think that I I intrinsically want to devalue things so that I don't have to ask for what they're really worth Mm. because then you have to feel deserving of that and that's complicated (laughs) yeah (laughs) feeling deserving Mm -hmm. and it's so interesting this feeling of deserving is rippling out through your whole company even though that's more kind of your I mean, do you feel like all the people that work for you struggle with those same things? Yeah, or? we actually just had a big meeting about this. Oh, okay. The other day, because <laughs> I realized, I, 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 yeah, I think we all, as artists, I, I just think it's so normal. And, yeah. but I also, we were talking about it internally. I was like, I think that's why we're all still here. It's why we're, we're, we've stuck together because we have this thing that we need to work on together. If anybody that was part of the business up till now, I think, had had a stronger sense of, oh, no, I'm not going to do that for that much. They would have left a long time ago, yeah. <laughs> you know? So everybody that's still here is, like, willing to sleep on floors and, you know, pinch every penny. And, and, and yeah, it's been nice having this other perspective where... We, we can all kind of bear witness to one another. I can say to my employees, you deserve more than this. You you deserve to make a living doing what you're doing. You deserve to be compensated, you know, fairly, if not well. Yeah. And then they can in turn try to say that back to me. And if we're saying it to each other enough, maybe we'll <laughs> start to believe it ourselves. But yeah. <laughs> that's so you- been really helpful for me having employees because I, uh-huh. I ask for that things for them 
before I would ever ask for things for myself. Like yes. it's much easier for me to, you know, come to terms with the reality of price points when I think of the fact that I really, really want to create a sustainable living for these people who have invested an enormous amount of time and energy into this business. Mm. Yeah, it's beyond you mm-hmm. and beyond what you want. Yeah. So do you think it just comes down to the fear that like, oh, if we charge too much, no one's going to buy it? Is yes. That, yeah. Bingo. <laughs> Yeah. That's exactly what it is. And then it'll end. <laughs> and then it'll all fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And you feel like that's, with the help of this new person, it's something you guys can work through? We'll see. I, I hope so. But it really also, I think it just, we've gotten to a point where we've all worked so hard for so long where we're kind of like, it's, a, you know, it's sort of like shit or get off the pot time. Yeah. Like we either have to make it really work out on paper or we've got to figure out what else to do because yeah. you can't just, you know, you can't, you can, but it gets really old and tiring to grind away, you know, 60 hours a week, every week. Not, not that everybody's doing that all of the time, yeah. but like, I think from my perspective as a business owner, it, it feels like that. It just feels like you're, you're relentlessly working. It's just that hamster wheel feeling yeah. of like trying to keep all the gears going and then not really even able to like you know reap the we we, we reap plenty of other rewards they're yeah. just not necessarily financial like yet getting to hang out with bill murray or something like we've never gotten to hang out with bill murray <laughs> okay. we don't actually meet these oh, really? celebrities that we I, work I just with. assumed that i would run into someone here like they just come here and get fitted for a jacket no, or that a almost or never happens really yeah yeah that's that's a Aww. funny instagram is a funny okay. thing like i we, I have no life. I have no social life. I have no, like, I don't hang out with celebrities. Like, the idea that, like, we are partying with celebrities all the time is, could not be farther from the truth. I genuinely, like, come to, I take my kids to school. I come to work. I go home. I go for a run. I go to bed. I get up. I get my kids to yeah. school. Like, um, I mean, like, my life is fine. I'm, I'm, I'm totally yeah. satisfied. But, um, yes, we primarily work with stylists and okay. and their team the team of people who are helping to dress yeah these people not not you know we have personal relationships with some of the celebrity type people that we work with but um they're rarely ever coming in here hmm. and we rarely ever meet them yeah and it, and for the most part we're totally happy with that oh, setup okay, okay. <laughs> yeah uh, yeah i don't really want to i have enough social anxiety as it is mm. and the idea of working with those kinds of egos <laughs> yeah i mean not to say that they're not all perfectly fine people it's more like i like to keep it simple it just complicates things more, yeah. a little bit more <laughs> yeah you said something in uh one video that i watched that someone had made about you about putting creativity to work could you elaborate on that just like what Did that I means know. to you yeah <laughs> Um, I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what I was talking about at that point, but knowing what I tend to go on and on about is I do feel drawn in general to making things that are of use to people. Yeah, that's. I think that's what you meant. Yeah. For sure. And maybe it's because I'm deeply insecure. <laughs> and so I find comfort in, you know, working with items that feel necessary on some level besides just hanging on a wall yeah, and being yeah. beautiful. 
I like that would be too much pressure. It would be too much of itself. Yeah. Like I think that there's definitely probably a worthiness issue of, I don't necessarily feel like I have anything to say that could Mm. just sit on a wall without any other reason for living. I have always just been drawn to making things that serve some other purpose. Mm-hmm. Either, you know, like when I was doing pastry or bread baking, uh, quilting, and then garment making, they're all things that kind of can be approached from a pragmatic standpoint. But yeah. that then are, that's a launching pad for all kinds of other creative ideas. Yeah. But there are, are there not some fine art kind of things that you guys have created too that are in of themselves just to look at? (laughs) Yeah. Yes. We, yeah, we play around with that for sure. And it's something that we really want to do more of. It's just nothing that I kind of fall. I, when I, when I get excited about ideas, those are not, that's not what is calling my name, but as a group, we really appreciate being offered the opportunity mm. to do that so that we can explore because we do so much custom work. Yeah. So we're often working with a client who's, you know, giving us feedback and kind of setting a certain tone. And so we do need to give ourselves opportunities to just make the things that we want to make. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so doing pieces that will go on a wall. <laughs> that's that's just, it's an opportunity to play around with different imagery and ideas for yeah. sure. But I don't know if that'll be, I think everybody here is interested in, in keeping that a piece of the puzzle, but just one piece of a broader yeah. puzzle. So what, it could be either or, like what really gets you out, out of bed in the morning or what are some of the things that you're most passionate about that you want to achieve through this business? Do you feel like maybe they're the same thing? I, I, I worry about sounding cliche, but I really, at this point, what makes me the most excited about the business is trying to figure out how to build something that can be a sustainable platform for a number of different artists. Mm-hmm. It, it's so hard to <laughs> to make a living in Austin as an artist and or musician or whatever, and so being able to bring people in and kind of you know have us all working together on this thing has felt incredibly satisfying. Like I get a lot more satisfaction from that actually than I do from the things that we make, which I also get a great deal of satisfaction from. I'm just often not actually as in the mix creatively as, and, and so to be able to stand back and watch these items being made by these people who I care so much about, like I now, so it's more about these, these people (laughs) and this team that I, I really, I'm so proud of them. And I'm so excited to see where it will go because I'm so inspired by all of them and their hard work. And that really, I, I am also simultaneously looking forward to being able to do more creative work yeah, yeah. in the business. Like that's been something that I've been working on for a while. And I think that I'm slowly but surely getting there. I stick my toe back in as often as I can. And I think I will be able to. Mm. And that feels really scary to me right now also, because I, yeah. do, I feel out of practice and yeah. a little clunky and like, I'm going to have to kind of get those wheels turning again. Um, what would that look like? What do you mean? Being 
creative yourself or doing more of that? Oh, just actually like doing more, more of the designing and embroidering on a regular basis. Like it's been five or six years of kind of departing from that and trying to get back to it. Mm -hmm. Um, I have been doing that all along, but never as regularly as, as, as I feel it would, would give me the ability to to feel like I was keeping those skills really finely honed. So every time I jump into a project, I'm always a little like, oh, I've got to find my footing. It takes me longer mm-hmm. than it would take one of my employees to do a, you know, a job. But I think I mean, I'm excited to kind of be able to be working um, on those projects more regularly again. But really, yeah, it's just kind of like here we have this thing kind of for a lot of weird, random reasons. We have this platform and this business and if it can exist in service of as many people as yeah. possible, then I think that's really, it blows my mind. It's really not what I had set yeah, out right. to build at all. <laughs> and so now I just feel like I, I want it to be as good as possible for as many uh, people as it can be, but, yeah. but not, not exploding it into like a giant business. I have no interest in that. Right, right, like right. starting with the people who are involved right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's really exciting. Yeah. I wish you luck with that. Thank you. Well, thanks for your time. Um, where would you have people just go to the website and check out what you're doing? Fortlonesome.com? Fortlonesome.com. That's us. Okay. Well, thank you, Kathy. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care. Take care.